Well, this morning we come back to our studies in the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians at the end of chapter 4. And I put on the blackboard um, something of the contrasts that we find in this paragraph that concludes chapter 4. In this book of 2 Corinthians, like many of the books of the Bible, are filled with contrasts. Um, I got a phone call earlier in the week uh, from John Price up in Rochester, and um, that's what he wanted. The question he had for me is, uh, he read uh, in a book by Matyer, J.A. Matyer, Alec Matyer, on uh, the book of Isaiah, that um, Matyer had said that the book of Isaiah is filled with contrast and he wanted to pick my brain for the some of the contrasts I could think about and so he must have come up with you know, maybe a couple dozen but there's even more than that in the book of Isaiah and in the book of 2 Corinthians you find those contrasts you saw the contrast that we looked at already in chapter 3 uh, between the letter and the spirit between the old and new covenant between Christ and Moses um, it about, the book abounds in these um, contrasts as the new covenant has been brought in through the gospel and through the ministry of the apostle. And uh, again, this is a, a book that centers largely on the subject of ministry, Paul's ministry that has been degraded in the minds of some uh, through influences of people who had not, little good to say about Paul, and little good to say about his ministry. And uh, Paul is writing uh, in defense of his ministry because this is, this is the gospel ministry. And the ministry that he engages in is very consistent with the nature of the gospel. You know, you think today about um, how people view ministry. You take a group of people graduating from an average evangelical seminary or, or Bible college planning to go into the ministry. And uh, if you were to go with your little uh, recorder, and like the man on the street interviewer, and go up to them and uh, remember Bob and Ray in New York that Wally Ballou coming and asking questions of people. Well, you don't have to be Wally Ballou, but um, you'd ask them, what is your anticipations about ministry? Uh, what are you hoping to see? And generally speaking, I would think you would get answers that would surprise you. Answers that would make the ministry more of the model of the business world. Um, the average person would think, well, maybe we'll start out in small church and then get a promotion to mid-sized church and then get a promotion from there to large church and maybe from there to mega church and who knows from there. And um, then they view uh, their, rec- their compensation package uh, from the business world, what the people in the business world have in terms of their, their packages. And I'm not saying it's not important for ministers to take care of their families and to make sure that they're doing what righteousness demands. Uh, the apostle says, if any man does not care for his own, if for his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. You, know, you can't just go off to minister as a, as a pauper and not care for the needs of your family and say, but I'm serving the Lord while your family starves. You know, you can't be doing that. But on the other extreme, you can't just say, well, I'm going to let the, the business world determine what I'm going to ask for in terms of packages or what I hope to gain um, through, through ministry. Uh, you look at Paul's ministry and you see that there's much that's filled with hardship, much that's filled with difficulty. Because again, the gospel calls us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. 
And the Christ we love and serve was the one who was a man of sorrows well acquainted with grief. He was a man of sufferings, a man who was hated of men and persecuted um, for, the, for righteousness' sake. And we're called to be among the persecuted. And the reality is that the, the grace of the gospel upholds us in the midst of those hardships. And Paul speaks of the reality that uh, as he endures persecution... Uh, He's not forsaken as he's struck down. He's not destroyed as he's afflicted in every way. He's not crushed as he's perplexed. He's not driven to despair. And that he's always carrying about in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. And again, what does it mean to carry around the body of Jesus, the death of Jesus in your own body, but to say, as the Lord I serve was delivered unto death, I'm I'm willing as well to be delivered unto death. And that's a very real possibility. And even though in the midst of Paul's hardships, there was always a a happy outcome, you might say. Uh, He was not uh, destroyed. He fought beasts in Ephesus and was delivered. There was deliverances one after another. Yet uh, you never know what the next day will bring. And you, you have to be prepared in this world for the reality that our stay in this world is going to be limited. I mean, because we're all going to die if Jesus does not return, and we need to be living in the face of the reality of the dissolution of our bodies. And so Paul concludes this uh, consideration of his ministry, um, carrying about in his body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in him, um, to speak in terms of what these external sufferings that he endured um, actually did for him. You know, these are things that are included in what he declared in the Roman letter when he said, if we are persuaded that all things are working together for the good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And he mentions all manner of adversities in the Roman letter. And he says, in none of these things we are losers. In all these things we're more than conquerors. He says that nothing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul faces these trials and tribulations with great thanksgiving, with the hope that God's going to bring good out of evil, that God's going to bring blessing out of the cursing of a fallen world. And he's spoken of the fact that even as his sufferings, he is upheld through the prayers of the people that God um, will raise us up with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Um, and again, it's through your prayers, he, he mentions. It's all to the end that through the, the more people that pray and more people that enter into the reality of the sufferings of his ministry, when God brings his deliverances about, thanksgiving would be increased also, all to the glory of God. And then within his own self, within his own person, all of these things that we would look at as probably the worst things that could ever happen to us. Why would we ever want to be in a position where we suffer the sort of things the Apostle Paul did? We might think this is, uh, this is something that is going to do us no good at, at all. Paul has a different take on it. And he actually sees these things as benefiting himself. 
Because he sees himself as more than just the outer man. He sees that there is in his identity as a human being something more than what men can do to him. Remember, Jesus says, do not fear him who could kill the body. And after that is nothing he can do to you, but rather fear him who is able to cast soul and body in hell. Don't fear what men can do to you. Because if, if men do their worst to you, what's the worst they can do? They can kill you. And what does that mean? That means you go to glory. You go to be with Jesus a little bit sooner than anticipated. Um, but even in this life, if we survive, it's going to redound to our benefit. He says, so we do not lose heart. So we do not lose heart. We're convinced we're not on the losing side of things. We're not on the losing side of, of history. We're not on the losing side of life. Um, he said we do not lose heart. That begins the uh, chapter in four one. And therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And then he says again, we do not lose heart. For though our outer self, literally the outer man, the part of our humanity that's seen of others, the part of our humanity that other people can touch, the part of our humanity that they can cast into a prison, the kind of the part of our humanity that they could beat with rods, the part of our humanity that they can put to death, that's the outer man. That's the body. That's what people see. And yet there's more to us than what people see. There's more to us than the outer man. He says, though our outer man is wasting away, experiencing dissolution, experiencing weakening, experiencing all these trials that we are called upon to go through. He says, our inner man is being renewed day by day. There's something happening to our lives in terms of the inner life, in terms of our inner man. That's being renewed day by day. So God's working through our trials and troubles. He's working inner strength, inner resolve to continue on in faith and in faithfulness. Why? Because he's meeting us in our troubles, in our trials. And we're knowing the blessing of a faithful God. Again, it's that old idea that's comprised in the hymn that we sing, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him, o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust you more. We've trusted him. And our trust has not been disappointed. Uh, We have met with God, and God has met with us, and we have experienced and known the reality of his grace and presence and blessing. And so we're being strengthened. Again, not in terms of the outer man. That's being assailed. That's being wounded. That's being depleted. It's experiencing dissolution. That's wasting away. It's something that's going stronger day by day. And that's the inner resolve of our hearts. To be faithful, to continue on, even in the face of these adversities. And then in verse 17, he speaks of, again, again, you have the contrast of the outer man, the inner man. 
And then there's a contrast between what he calls light affliction and weight of glory. Uh, it's likely as we read these accounts of his hardships, there's hardly anything here we're going to look upon ourselves as light afflictions. We think of them as major calamities. But Paul is not thinking in those terms. He's thinking there's something greater that's coming to the child of God that makes these transient, temporary afflictions that mean us in this life to be a blip on the radar screen in comparison to something that is coming. As he says, this light affliction, this light momentary affliction, the passing trials that we are going through in this life is actually preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so though the outer man is dissolving, experiencing dissolution, experiencing all the hardships and troubles that an evil world can throw our way, yet God has a purpose in it to prepare us for what he calls an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now Paul's using uh, language that uh, part of it comes from the Hebrew understanding of glory. Glory means weight. Glory is something that speaks of the substantial attributes and fullness that we find in the living God. We don't find in God something uh, weak and paltry and insignificant. We find something weighty. And Paul says, that's glory. And there is a weight of glory to be found in God that is beyond all description. It's beyond anything on earth we could ever compare with it. Part of it is that it's eternal. It's everlasting. It's, it's everlasting. It's forever. It will not cease. The part of it, it's just that it's, it's a glory so wondrous and so uh, beyond measure that everything in this life is paltry in comparison to it. And the idea of weight, weight of glory, is saying it outweighs everything that we endure or experience in this life. Uh, You think of what he says in the Roman letter, which also calls us to a a similar consideration. Uh, You look at Romans chapter 8, and verse 18. And Paul says, Here, for I consider, uh, for I'm thinking this thing through, It's not something that's going to just be apparent naturally. It's something you really have to work your way through in your thinking. It's something that needs to be considered. He says, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul says, put it in the scales and weigh it. We're on one side of the scale. The sufferings of the present time. All that people can do to us. All that can affect the outer man. All that can affect what uh, people see. And yet there's something, the hidden man, the hidden woman of the heart, um, that aspires to something greater than what this world can give. It aspires to glory. It aspires to eternal glory in the presence of God. And as we focus not on what people can do to us in the small space of time in this present life where they can afflict us and they can hurt us and they can wound us and they can uh, do their worst to us, all of that, put it all together and put it on the scale and stick on the other part of the scale 
the glory to be revealed to us. An eternal weight of glory. And he says, what is on that end of the scale so far outweighs the stuff of the present life. It's it's transient, it's temporary. Versus what is eternal. It is something that, when you really consider it, uh, people cannot really affect the real person. Can only affect what they see. There is the hidden person, the hidden man, the hidden woman of the heart that clings to God. And when they throw us in a prison, we're still the Lord's free people. And we have that sense, Lord, we are liberated from condemnation and we're liberated from the dominion of sin and we're liberated from all the evils of this present evil age. And we are people of a new age. We're people that aspire to so much more than what the world considers important. Because when the people of this world gain the world, they forfeit their own souls, their own lives. I think it was, uh, wasn't Alexander that conquered the world and then was in a fit of despair because there was nothing else to do, nothing else to conquer. I've already conquered everything. I've already gotten everything I've ever wanted. And then what, what, what is left? Uh, the old Peggy Lee song, is that all there is? Is that all there is? Well, there is more. But the people of the world know nothing of it. But God's people know that there is this eternal weight of glory. God's people know when you put it in the scales, it balances out that the glory that is to be revealed to us is so far greater than any of the troubles and trials of this present age. And so Paul draws the contrast outer man, inner man, light momentary affliction, eternal weight of glory. But this is something, again, back in the Roman letter, he says we have to consider. We have to think it through. We can't just be lazy about this and think it's going to be apparent to us that uh, we are actually rich when we are poor. We are actually blessed when we, the world curses us. We are actually in the safety of the arms of our loving God when the hatred of the world descends upon us with all of its malice. It's not apparent. It's something you've got to think about. And here he says, it's as we look. It's as we look. We have to have something in our eye other than the misery of the trials and troubles that we're passing through. It's as we look. Not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So you see, you got the contrast. Things seen, things unseen. Again, we get caught up with the things we see. It's obvious. We see them. They're right there. Haven't seen heaven. Haven't seen glory. Haven't seen the face of God. The things that are promised to us, we receive by faith. The things that are promised to us, we see with the eyes of faith. But we have to be looking with the eyes of faith. We have to be actively looking at that which is transcendent over the things of this life. If we're looking only upon the things that are seen, we're going to get consumed with the things that are seen. And the tyranny of the present troubles of the hour are just going to overwhelm us. We need to look beyond the things that are seen to the things that are not seen. We need to look at the glory that's to come. We need to look at the face of God as it's revealed to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to consider the things that God is doing for us, in us, through 
the troubles of this present hour. We have to face them as people of faith. And then we have to understand that the things that are seen are transient, they're temporal, they're fading, they're not lasting. Just as the people of this world that indulge themselves in the things of this world are going to find that the pleasures of this world are but for a season. They're the passing pleasures of sin. They're not lasting. Even if they last three score and ten years, you're going to die. You're going to lose the things of this world. The things that are not seen are eternal things. And hence are the things worth pursuing. They're the things worth valuing. The things that are worth estimating at a much greater rate than the, than the, the plaudits and the um, glory and the honors that the world would set at our feet. It's the glory that God sits at our feet as we look to the things that are the eternal things. This is the way you endure afflictions and you don't lose heart. You know you're on the triumphant side of of things. You know that the victory is yours when you make those contrasts clear in your own thoughts. And again, it is a matter of getting on board with the biblical view of things and not let the worldly view of things just consume your soul and just see these things as the people of the world see them. Part of what Paul calls in the Roman letter being spiritually minded, having the things of the Spirit govern our outlook, our understanding. To be spiritually minded, it's life and peace. Carnally minded, it's just death. It's just the stench of death upon all that just views views life from this earthly perspective and doesn't admit the reality of the transcendence of the God we serve and the glory that he's promised to us and that that Christ has secured for us through his death and resurrection to be a people who see things from an eternal perspective. Any questions at all about the final paragraph of chapter 4? before we get into the little bit more difficult paragraph that meets us in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is a, is a disputed passage that's sad to say as time seems to move on. More and more commentators and theologians are giving short play to the historic way in which chapter 5 has been viewed. Um, The picture that the scripture gives of this eternal weight of glory that meets us at the last day. Uh, This eternity that God has promised to us is an eternity that involves the whole man or the whole woman, the whole person, all of our identity. And in fact, it involves really the whole world. It's God's quest through Christ to redeem the world to himself. And that includes the physical creation itself. That includes what the Bible describes as a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That the creation polluted by sin will one day be redeemed from all of the curse that is under as a result of human sin. 
and that human beings redeemed by the blood of Christ are experiencing a new world, a new age, a new order of things. And so those are last days realities. These, these are age to come realities. Now, as you know, the East Age to come has really entered in to history through Jesus. Jesus coming. And Jesus dying. And Jesus rising. You have realities that are really end time realities that now have met us in the person of Jesus. So that the resurrection that... Remember Martha said to Jesus, I know that Lazarus will rise. I know my brother will rise. Will rise at the last day. So she's expecting what most Jews would have expected. Last day, resurrection. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And he that lives and believes in me will never die. There's something of a never dying component to the lives of believers, those who trust in Jesus, that will meet us because he is himself the resurrection and the life. But ultimately, again, these are last day realities that have entered into time because Christ has come. Christ has ushered in the last days. Did you know that? A lot of times people think of prophecy, last days things, just as simply out in the future, and nothing to do with the present age. But the Bible, Bible presents a different story. The Bible says the ends of the age have come to us. We saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that these promises are given to you upon whom the ends of the age have come. The end of the age is now. The end of the age was ushered in by the coming of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1. The God who spoke in many different ways to the fathers and the prophets now at the end of the days, at the last days, has spoken to us in his Son. So really what the last days we're referring to is the last days that were expected by the prophets of Israel. The last days are the days when the promises of God begin to be fulfilled. And so the fulfillment of the promises of God come to us by means of what we're going to read in this passage. is a down payment of the things that are to come. Uh, Paul uses languages like that um, in verse 5. He says that he has prepared for us, this very, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The Spirit is a down payment of things that are to come. And so we have the blessings of the age to come now. You think of the language the Scripture uses of eternal life. And again, you think of eternal life as that's out there. That's endless duration in the age to come. But actually, eternal life is a present possession. We have eternal life. It's not that we'll get eternal life, but we have eternal life through Jesus Christ. And the possession of eternal life is simply the new quality of life, the life of the age to come, coming into our experience now through the Spirit that has been given to uh, the Spirit who has been, been given to us. So there's something of what we call the overlapping of the age. The age to come is is now. It exists now. The things that are already come to us through the down payment of the spirit that's given to us now and yet there are things that are yet to come but as God is in the work of redeeming the world bringing the blessings of new creation here so that if any man is in Christ behold a new creation behold the age to come has come now into our present experience 
So the way in which we are redeemed unto God is also not just all in one fell swoop. There are aspects of our humanity that God works in and through to bring us to the ultimate end that we will see in the last days. And one of the aspects of our humanity is, as we said, we're outer man and inward man. We have the aspect of our humanity that the world can see, that the world can kill, that the world can cast into a prison, that the world can starve, that the world can act so beastily towards. And yet there is that inward man being renewed day by day that clings to God, clings to promises, clings to eternal realities, clings to the hope of everlasting life and the reality that we're possessors of that promise. And so as Paul thinks of death, the possibility that people can actually take his life from him, the question is, what is he hoping for? And, and the, 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 the idea today seems to be that Paul conceives of the death of a believer. So here you have believers dying in Jesus, because Jesus has come, the processors of everlasting life, and yet when death comes, they are saying there's the death of the whole humanity. There's the temporary suspension of our human existence and personality until resurrection comes. It's only when the last day resurrection comes and Jesus is raised from the dead that we'll have renewed existence. But there's no existence from death to resurrection. Classically this has been called soul sleep. It's also called conditional immortality. And I'm very troubled that it's more and more being believed by people in the churches. And I think it just doesn't fit what Paul says here. Now let me just say this before we begin to look at chapter 5. The ultimate hope of the believer is here at the last day. The resurrection of the body. The unity of body and soul, living in a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the ultimate end of Jesus' salvation. And yet Jesus' salvation comes to us in terms of a new creation beginning when we come to faith. So it's not just, well, we'll get new creation then and there. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses are telling people. They're promising people you get born again when you go to become the part of, I guess is a part of 144,000. I don't know, they change it. They change what they think. But before you enter the kingdom, you'll be born again. But uh, that won't be until the last day. And they don't believe, really, there's anything presently that we get in terms of regeneration. There's not a regeneration of the soul. But we believe there is a regeneration of the inner life. Now, there's not the regeneration of the body. The body will still die. But there is a regeneration of the inner life. That's why when the outer man is dissolving and decaying, the inner man is being renewed day by day. 
You're going through afflictions is not going to make you stronger to lift weights or to run faster. Going through afflictions is going to just simply wear down the body until the body ultimately dies. But Paul's saying it's the inner man, it's the inner life that's being renewed day by day. It's not subject to the same influences the world can meet out upon the outer man, upon the body. And that's because the inner life has an intimate connection and communion with the living God. Now again, we're made to be body-soul entities. That's why the resurrection is the ultimate hope. It is the great thing we're looking for. But yet at death, the Bible does speak of another reality. That when the body dies, the inner life lives on. The inner life goes to God. Enters the presence of God. And this is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I know there's parts of it where he's using language and in other places he uses for resurrection. But he's also using language that doesn't fit resurrection at all. I mean, absent from the body does not fit resurrection. Absent from the body can't be resurrection because the body's raised. So you're not absent from the body, the body's raised. And you're reunited with your body, and yet Paul speaks of absent from the body. Let me read the whole section, and then we'll look to take it apart bit by bit. Chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, that's just a very metaphoric, poetic way to speak of the body, where the Holy Spirit dwells. Again, it's an earthly tent. It's like the tabernacle. Our bodies are like the tabernacle in the wilderness where God dwelt. Our bodies become an earthly tent in which God dwells. So this earthly tent, and it has importance because it is the earthly tent in which God dwells. It is the habitation of God through the Spirit. Or the church is the habitation of God through the Spirit. But it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells the life and body, the existence and being of the people of God. But this earthly, this tent that is our earthly home, if it's destroyed, and it's capable of being destroyed, does that mean we're all every aspect of our, our, our humanity is destroyed? Again, the people today that are denying the existence of the soul or the existence of the inner life beyond death, that's what they're saying. They're saying we're not a bipartite bipartite simply means two parts by is two and partite is part we're two parts inner and outer classic language for that is body and soul or body and spirit some people teach a tripart thing separating soul and spirit but I don't think that's really a wise thing I think we're we're made Dust from the ground, and God formed. When God formed us, dust from the ground, what did He form? He formed the body, the body that from that uh, returns to the dust. That's what He. That's what He formed. But then He did something else. He breathed into it the breath of life. There's a breath that came from God. And breath is also a word that means spirit. There's a spirit that came from God that breathed a human spirit into us. 
that makes us different from the animals. I realize it says that man became a living soul. Animals are also called living souls in the Old Testament. But the reality is, when God made the animals, he just said, let the earth bring forth. Or let the sea bring forth. When he made man, he breathed into man the breath of life. And so we're living souls in the sense no animal is living soul. Because what's breathed into us as soul and body entities constitutes us image of God. And so we're not a monad, one. We're bipartite, two entities. And Paul anticipates that when the body dies, when the earthly house, the earthly tent is destroyed. He says we have a building from God. It may be a contrast between uh, the earthly tent, the tabernacle in the wilderness was a tent, and there's a building from God that may be a temple. Because temples tended to be more permanent than the movable tent that went from place to place. It's actually a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now what, what in the world can a, a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens be? And again, if we're thinking of you know, some heavenly architectural edifice that God constructed in the heavens, we'd be thinking wrongly. We have to think metaphorically, because that's what the Bible is using. He's using a metaphor of a temple that will clothe us. Well, what's a temple that will clothe us? Well, I suggest it's the very presence of God. Because what is a temple? But the place where God dwells. It's a dwelling place of God. God will receive us into his dwelling place, into his presence. Jesus speaks a parable of, uh, about being received into eternal habitations. That's what he's talking about. You're received into the eternal dwelling place of God. He says when our earthly house, this outer man, this tent we dwell in, dissolves, destroyed, we have continued existence in a habitation that we're clothed upon by God. He says, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Ultimately, the longing to put on our heavenly dwelling is not just what we call the disembodied state, when we die and we go to be with Christ. But ultimately, we're longing for this last day stuff. We're longing for the end of the story. But God meets us with more... With, with other things almost every step of the way. Like he meets us at, at faith with new creation. With the beginnings of the age to come that come by way of down payment of the future inheritance. And he meets us at death with the provision of his presence. But again, the ultimate thing is, is the resurrection of the body. That's still the ultimate thing. But yet, we, we, why do we want the resurrection? Why do we want the last day? Well, I mean, there's a couple of reasons, but still one, one of the things that's common between the disembodied state and the eternal state is divine presence. Divine presence. God dwells with us, and we dwell with him. 
So the yearning is for the presence of God. Now we yearn ultimately for the presence of God that will meet us at the age to come, because that ultimately is to give God greater glory. You know, we die, we go to heaven, and we enter the presence of God. That's good for us. But we want to see the ultimate subjugation of all creation to His Lordship. And that's why that's our ultimate hope. That's why we're hoping for the, the second coming. Because that doesn't just involve us individually and personally. That involves all creation being renewed. All creation being placed under his authority and his lordship. And a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And there's no need for a temple, an architectural temple. Why? He is present throughout creation. It's the old, it's the old um, uh, song of the angels. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The whole earth will be filled with his glory. Because there will be a multitude that no man can number from every kindred, tongue, and tribe that will be gathered together in a new heavens and new earth. And that's far more glorious than just you and I going to heaven. Although you and I going to heaven, that's not not, not to be considered. For for our own personal hope, it's, 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 it's incredible. It's great. It's sustaining. It's joyful. But again, as believers, we want more. We want more than just our own personal peace and happiness. We want the glory of God to be revealed throughout all the earth. So that's why I would make a distinction between the ultimate hope, last day stuff, and the individual hope, you and me, dying and going to glory. But the point is, you and I, when we die, there's no question we exist. This continued existence for the people of God beyond death. Because there is this habitation, this building from God, this house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, into which we will be received. I mean, you think of it in so many passages of Scripture that all point in the same direction. Again, what these, what these folks tend to do is they tend to say, well, the Bible makes the, the last day the major thing, the resurrection, the great hope. So then that means that eclipses every other hope. No, no. It shouldn't eclipse every other hope. There was a thief that was on a cross dying, being crucified together with Jesus. And initially he joined with his friend who's also being crucified mocking Jesus saying come down from the cross if you're the son of God at one point he begins to change his tune he begins to look at Jesus and he sees something remarkable about him something that has no earthly human explanation and he ends up addressing him as Lord and he says to him Lord remember me when you enter into your kingdom now let me ask you when does Jesus enter into his kingdom don't be afraid to guess <laughs> when did Jesus enter into his kingdom when he comes into this world well that's when he inaugurates the kingdom that's when he says repent for the kingdom of God is what at hand the kingdom of God is coming when does the kingdom of God actually come Resurrection and ascension. That's when the king ascends the throne. That's when the king who dies and rises again, God says to him, sit at my right hand. So I'll make your enemies the footstool of your feet. 
that's when he enters into his kingdom. And so that's what the man prays. Lord, I mean, I'm not that the thief knew all that, but he knew Jesus was Lord, and he knew Jesus had a kingdom. And Jesus' response is, Today you will be with me in paradise. So I guess that what must must make us ask. Um, when Jesus died, where did his human spirit go? Where did his human inner life go? Did it cease to be? Did it cease to exist? Because his body was in the tomb? What's that? Huh? No. You can try in God, but how could his... Well, I'm speaking of his human spirit. Oh. See, to, say, to say the human spirit ceased to exist would to really break up what we think about in terms of the, um, the indissolubility of the, what we call the hypostatic union, the union of, the, of, of, of uh, Jesus as God-man. That the humanity of Jesus ceased to exist. This is, it died until resurrection. But no. Jesus went to be with the Father. Or Jesus went in his human spirit again to be clothed upon by the Spirit, of, uh, by, by the Lord until the resurrection. And then united to his body he entered into glory as the God-man at the right hand of God. And the thief entered into the presence of God as well. Yes, Jan. I'm sorry? I think what you were leading up to saying about the thief on the cross is that Jesus says, This day you will be with me. Uh, uh, yeah, I said that. Yeah. <laughs> I said, I said. And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the expectation that your body would be there, but. Yeah, yeah. But, but again, I'm thinking of this day, where's Jesus going? Jesus going to the presence of his Father in his human spirit. Again, as, as eternal God, there was always the reality of his interconnectedness with the heavenlies and his reign and rule over all of the world but in terms of being joined to this humanity what happened to this human nature of Jesus this human nature of Jesus was received by the father until the resurrection when he's received back into heaven as a body soul entity and the spirit of this man on the cross this day went with Jesus into the presence of God that's where they both went terms of human spirits going into the presence of God you think of the book of Revelation and the book of Revelation speaks of the souls of the martyrs those that were beheaded for the sake of the gospel where did they go? what happened to them? did they cease to exist awaiting the resurrection of the last day? well again there's the picture that's given of this um, multitude that no man can number from every kindred, tongue, and tribe. No, I'm sorry. That's, that's chapter 7. Back in chapter 6. It's the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, he says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now, I don't know how you see souls, but I tell you, people who are slain for the word of God I know where their bodies are they've been killed and their bodies are interred into the ground or into a cave or 
died at sea or wherever the body of the, of, of the slain um, have, have as the body uh, dissolves um, where it goes for its final resting place but yet there were souls that continued on existing the lives of these people martyred for the sake of the gospel slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne continued on existing after death they cried out with a loud voice O sovereign Lord holy and true how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth and they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Again, souls, why they need a white robe? Again, it's, it's metaphoric. It's metaphoric. They're being received into the presence of God. And they, um, they're under the altar. Place of safety and security. The, the altar, either the, the altar of incense that, that offers up incense. Um, uh, you know, that's an altar that clothed the people, the, the, the priests, from the very presence of God when he went into the Holy of Holies. It might be that aspect of it, that it provides something of a, of a shield to the presence of the, of the, of the one upon the throne. Um, but they're kept in safety. They're kept in the, under the protection of the God of heaven. And they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they himself had been. Well, where do the martyrs go? seems the martyrs go into the presence of God. When the writer of the Hebrews says, you've come unto Mount Zion. I turn to that in the uh, book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. We'll get back to 2 Corinthians real quick. We'll finish it anyway next week. We don't get back there very far. we're told in verse uh, 18 you've not come to that which may be touched the blazing fire and the darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet he's, what is he talking about? he's talking about Mount Sinai those who heard the words begged that no further messages be spoken to them that's Israel's experience at Mount Sinai but in verse 22 you've come to Mount Zion You've not come to Mount Sinai with all of the... I mean, God's presence was at Mount Sinai. but It was his presence in, that struck fear into the hearts of the people. Now you've come to a mountain that offers greater sense of our acceptance and our, our access to the presence of the God on, on, on Zion. He's not meeting us with lightning and fire and fear. He's meeting us with these things. You've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all. And listen to this one, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What in the world do the spirits of the righteous made perfect mean if people who die cease to be? But there are spirits of the righteous that are perfected in the presence of God. So it seems to be that when we think of our own personal future, we think of death as the perfecting of our souls. And we think of the day of resurrection as a day when our bodies will be raised and our bodies will enter in 
to that experience of the perfection of the body, having a body like unto his own glorious body. But first there is the perfecting of our spirits, our inner, inner life. That inner life that though experiencing all these troubles and trials in this life is being renewed day by day. That spirit of death will go to be with the Lord, will be clothed upon by God's own gracious presence. He says, while we are in this tent, verse 4, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed. It's just not that we, we don't want to die. It's not that we take any pleasure in the, the fact of death, the experience of death, but that we would be further clothed. What does that mean? Well, that we would be clothed by divine presence and divine provision, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. That which is subject to death makes enter into the fullness of life. Again, that an, is an expression that probably does refer to resurrection, but again, the down payment of, of, of that future day of resurrection meets us in terms of the resurrection of the soul and the, and the perfection of the soul in the presence of God at the state of death. For he who has prepared us for this very thing as God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, while we are alive, while we are in this world, we are away from the Lord. We're not in his immediate presence. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We will see God. There will be the vision of God. They, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We will see the God um, whom we've come to love and serve as we see Jesus when we enter into his presence. And yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul says that's the thing we long for. We long to be in the presence of the Lord. And that presence of the Lord that we will first experience and know, unless we are alive at the time when Jesus comes to raise us from the dead, is a presence of the Lord that means away from the body. There is existence apart from the body. And Paul says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Well, we can't take up the picture of the judgment seat of Christ now because our time is gone. But I hope at least that's uh, at least a little bit of a, a sense of um, why we still take the old view. Why we will not view humanity, human life in this world as just material. And that if you kill the body, you kill all, every aspect of us until the resurrection comes. And then when resurrection comes and God puts a new brain into a new body, then uh, people will then function as uh, human souls or have inner life. It, you know, there, there's not this absolute connection between our inner awareness and consciousness and our brains. There are people in comas that can't have all the neural transmitters that enable them to communicate and yet they seem to be aware of their environment 
in ways only when after they come out of the coma they can tell you about. I heard people talking and I saw things. Um, we're more than just bodies. We're more than just just brains. We're more than just uh, our neural transmitters and uh, our synapses and uh, our central nervous systems. We um, that's the means through which our souls um, emote and feel and speak and communicate and, and live but uh, it's not bound to it simply not bound to it we're more than just bodies well I hope that's helpful and so our time is gone uh, God willing if you have questions bring them up next week as we look to uh, take up the rest of chapter 5 let's pray together Father we're thankful we can meet in your presence we're thankful we can talk about these matters that are hotly debated in our world today and in the church today and we pray Father that we would be a people whose minds and hearts are captive to your word that we would be following the scriptures wherever they would lead us and even if that would conflict with the findings of modern science even if that would conflict with the philosophical notions of the people around us we would hold fast the truth as it is in Jesus the truth the church has confessed in every generation And that we would have a hope that is beyond the grave. For we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Not death itself is able to separate us from your grace, from your presence, from existence that is lived out before you as those who are the possessors of eternal life through, through, through through our Lord Jesus. So we pray you'd hear our prayers, you'd, you'd fill our hearts with hope, you'd give us courage in the face of all of the trials and troubles of this, of this life, as we come and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.